Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Adam Godfrey is a sales leader with 20 years experience in tech. His fitness and mindset journey started during the pandemic as he battled his own adversities. Although he has just completed the toughest foot race on earth, Adam is determined to continue to refine and push his limits further in every capacity. I've known this man for three years now, and the work that he's doing with Flyform as a leader, as a sales director, everything is truly something that's remarkable. Adam, thank you for being here, my friend. It's been a long time coming. No, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Excited to be part of it. Well, you've earned it. You and I met each other a while back. You work at Flyform with two co-founders, amazing Phil and Aaron Davies. Love those guys have all the respect in the world for them. And you came in in a place where you guys were really making a lot of changes quickly and you were forced to adapt quickly in that environment. And you have a a military background. Tell us a little bit about that military background and how that was able to serve you in the ever-changing chaos of a growing company. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the military felt a bit easier than a (laughs) high-growth tech company, to be honest. Um, But yeah, I, I went through uh, officer training, served in the infantry. That was a long time ago now. I've since done a relatively long career in tech. But I met Phil and Aaron, as you said, they're quite exceptional people. They got me to leave the large company I was at in at the time and join uh, their company a year or two after the startup. Um, and from that moment, four and a half years ago, it has been a high growth rocket ship journey. I mean, it's, people say starting businesses is hard and many fail, as you know. But I, I think the team that we've got have enabled us to uh, encounter all those challenges that everyone face uh, and overcome them together, um, you know, to the extent where we now have a very successful business. Yeah, you guys have done so much growth and you've also been very agile in the process, which is is absolutely necessary that all companies go through growing pains and that's a, a sign of of adaptation, as we know. But it doesn't always make it easier when we're in the in the heat of it. And during the pandemic, you were one of the few companies that actually leaned into that opportunity. You guys actually did better than many other companies because so many other companies were afraid of failing. So they just kind of held on. The smaller companies at the bottom just fizzled out. And you guys were in this position where I, I believe that there were a lot of awards given to Flyform during those timeframes simply because of the yep. aggressive default aggressive mentality that you all exhibited in the face of adversity? I mean, we were scared, you know, when the pandemic came in terms of what it meant for business, as everyone was. Uh, we were also quite fortunate. We built our business to be focused predominantly on on the public sector, uh, government spending. Mm-hmm. And through COVID pandemic, um, they increased their spend and they had to deal with 
different situations. And the technology that we provide that we partner with Stoves now to provide helped overcome a lot of those situations. So for us, it was a growth period. Um, and we were lucky to be, you know, significantly well represented in that government spend area already. There were new opportunities created out of it. And we were able to be very flexible and nimble in how we engage. Some organisations needed us to step in sooner than you would normally do according to process to help deploy things for the National Health Service in the UK, for example. Um, but the whole team at Flyform put their hand up and volunteered for that work. They'd be doing workshops for a normal customer in the day and then they'd be volunteering to help uh, NHS England or some of our other public sector clients in the evening just to help them achieve their objectives against very pressing deadlines. So lucky to be part of that organisation. And you guys have stepped in and had some great success working with ServiceNow and a lot of these big companies. You just got back in the United States when you went to a, was it a, a ServiceNow? Yeah, ServiceNow have a number of events around the world, the largest of which is called Knowledge, uh, which is based in Vegas. It's a tech conference like many in Vegas, about 20,000 people. Uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to network with people you work with globally. Uh, it's quite a bit of fun going to Vegas for a week, uh, although maybe exhausting at times. And it's an opportunity for service now to share what they're excited about with their customers, their partners, and and the you know the, the investors that you know the people that support service now as a company. Um, that was you know some big news coming out of that. It's exciting for them, exciting for us. It informs our strategy and our views and opinions as well. So it's a great great event, and you know it's kind of uh, you know bleeding edge in terms of what ServiceNow are doing. Uh, so it's exciting to be part of that ecosystem. It absolutely is. And as a a veteran, as a a leader, as a veteran from the infantry, a lot of people probably have a certain idea. They think you just come in and bash people over the heads and say, "Let's go, let's go take that hill." And and there absolutely are times to do that, but. Tell us about your journey over the last few years where you've been able to understand where to have the surgical aggression and also when able to detach that back and say, okay, what am I doing or what can I do to serve this person with this pragmatic empathy so we can accomplish the mission? Yeah. Uh, I wish I learned those skills a lot sooner. Um, <laughs> it, it, did take, it did take me a long time to adjust from one way of doing things, attacking, you know, straight on. Um, and sometimes leaving people a bit bruised on the way. So maybe picking up the softer skills. And that's where I'm lucky to be partnered with these guys, Phil and Aaron, have a completely different skill set, complementing and enhancing mine. Many of the softer skills I've picked up from them, I enjoy being coached by them and mentored by them. Uh, so it's quite a, you know, a, an interesting, unique relationship. Uh, but they've certainly helped me grow in many ways. Uh, and those skill sets are certainly on that list. Well, and when you have leadership that are all on the same level, so you can have those conversations, you can be very honest. And again, sometimes in honesty is that ego that gets kind of beat up, but you've intentionally really leaned into that discomfort and said, no bullshit, is this true? And if it is true, then why am I upset about it? What can I do? And then what else does that do? That gives you leadership capital with your team, with the rest of the company. We have seen where some companies where there's almost this division like factions within a company, but that doesn't really serve the mission if we have people that feel like they're working against this other side or the other side of the equation. And now we're butting heads and we're creating this unnecessary friction that doesn't allow us to accomplish the thing that we're trying to do. And how have you been able to see those things, circumvent them, or at least head them off at the past so it doesn't become something bigger to where now it inhibits your capacity to deliver? I mean, I'm a 
avid reader or listen to audio books um, and stuff like much of your audience, I'm sure, reading the books and putting them into practice are two different things. And I'm very guilty of that, as I'm sure many people are. So, you know, with um, the other directors of business, we'd read books, we'd talk about them, we'd swap books, we'd buy each other copies of books. That's great. It's great to have someone there to call you up on it. When I can jump on a Zoom call and passionately describe a problem, and they can say, do you really think you're exhibiting extreme ownership in this circumstance? And that hits you in the face hard, but you need it. Because why did I read that book probably three or four times a year if I'm not going to practice it? But isn't it great to have people in the organisation that can remind you of that? You know, because it's an opportunity that would have passed otherwise. And then you swallow hard and realise, right, I'm, I'm bitching and moaning here about this problem, but actually how much responsibility have I got in this and how can I you know, pivot and turn this around? So I'm lucky to have people like that that can challenge me similar mindset. We don't just read the exact same books. They'll come in with books that they've read or recommended, et cetera. Helps me continue to grow. They push me out of my comfort zone. You know, I like to hope I do the same for them as well. And then that makes all of us kind of get stronger uh, and learn as we go along. And I think it's great because I've seen everyone in the organization over the last few years where there's been this pivot where one person is going through this sort of journey yeah, and then almost like the yin to the yang, another person goes through that side of the journey. But because we've been there, we're more informed. And now we have this ability to, to say, like you're saying, oh, this person, they're focused on this, or maybe they're dealing with this adversity right now, whatever it is. And now that bleeds over into everything that they do. And so if we aren't able to really separate this emotional component not not in a negative way, but say, listen, right now this is not serving me. Is this going to help us get where we need to go? As you and I always say, we're either getting closer to the goal or further away. There's no in-between. Yeah. So every action that we do is either helping us or hurting us. It's either adding more weight to the rucksack or it's pulling it out. So it's so important to be able to do that. You've mentioned extreme ownership. What other books really come to mind to you when it comes to the kind of leadership that you're deploying right now? Jim Collins from, you know, learning from bigger businesses, people that have been there, done it before, very, you know, science backed numbers, you know, hard information and the learnings from that. Uh, the case studies in there are phenomenal and timeless. You know. we, we all get quite excited about that. For me, Simon Sinek, more about leadership style, uh, about being a, you know, a servant leader. You know, those are the sort of things um, that rub off on us um, and we believe you know try to positively influence the culture the business that we've built so um it's not exclusive to those but there's probably two of the, the bigger authors that feature um at christmas we bought all of our team instead of random swag or something that's going to end up in landfill we bought them all books with a personalized message from phil the founder ceo um and that's so we get these books buy them for people and recommend them to people and um, so you know that's very much part of the culture not just that leadership team but across the organization. Yeah, that's everything. You studied leadership for a while. And again, you have experience from the military. Sometimes the military experience of leadership is like drinking off of a fire hose is the analogy that we're always told. Having said that, you're around enough big businesses, you're around enough people in this environment in tech. What is the worst piece of leadership advice that you hear continually parroted that you know to be false or you know to be almost detrimental in the process? That's a great question. I was going to say, and you're smiling because there's probably like half a dozen things that are popping into your mind. I'm not sure about biggest core piece of advice. You know, I think the biggest challenge a lot of people face is, you know, successfully delegating and letting go. I've definitely been guilty of that myself. 
you know, we strive, our, our tagline at Fireform is to be the ultimate ServiceNow partner. Um, we're striving for, for perfection. You'll never get there, but the journey puts you on a good trajectory. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to let go of stuff, but rewarding when you can. And when you empower people and see them grow, uh, when as a leader, you can create more leaders. Um, you know, these are opportunities that are missed if you don't uh, follow that through. So um, I'm not sure in terms of specific advice, but in terms of gotchas, you know, uh, traps to avoid falling into, for sure. I think I know the answer, but why do so many leaders have a hard time letting go and delegating and becoming the bottleneck? I think... Um, yeah, certainly businesses where people have formed a business themselves, you know, they probably had to do all the jobs at one point, might consider themselves excellent at all the jobs, maybe true, maybe not, but will normally have a healthy amount of perfectionism in their uh, drive, you know, because they want to create outstanding companies. These are all good things, can hold you back from scaling, from growing, can hold back the people all around you, can limit people's opportunities, ultimately can lead to people leaving, leaving the organisation. I think those are things to be aware of and conscious of, but you know, diff- difficult to let go of, naturally attached to all of those things. And it makes sense. I mean, again, if it's something that we've created or something that we are really invested in, of course we want to be in there, but we also have to have the ability, like you said, if we're, if we have people, if we've hired a bunch of C-suite executives and we're paying them a lot of money, let them earn their money, let them earn their salary, because if not, then you're just paying a lot of money to somebody for you to still have to do their job. And I've been guilty of that too. I think everybody is. I think if anybody's a leader now, they're probably listening and they may have a, a smirk on their face and say, yeah, I've done that before. Or we catch ourselves maybe wanting to step into that place again, right? Absolutely. Yeah. When the pressure's on and you think it's easier to do it yourself rather than empower someone else to do it. So it's a very deceiving idea. Like, you know, you say yes to too many things quite quickly and you can become unstuck yourself when there was opportunity that someone else could be doing it better than you, faster than you. Yeah. And what else is it like this, this inefficiency short term is going to give us long term efficiency if we're willing to do that. But if we're like, I'll just do that now, it's almost the equivalent of the the restaurant owner coming in and seating people at the door when he already has a, a qualified, you know, group of people there. It's like, why not let the staff do what they're supposed to do? Step back, take a look, maybe come in and have dinner and look at it from a that kind of perspective. I think we're guilty of the stuff that's fun, right, as well. My primary role is around sales. You know, so when one of my team give me an opportunity to get involved in a deal, sometimes I can get a bit carried away because I love sales. It's great. It's fun. That's not where I'm going to deliver the most value for Flyform or our customers. Uh, and potentially I could be holding back my team and their development. So um, it's, it's understandable how you can get quite passionate and into those things because you know, whether it be, you know, cooking or serving or doing a sales call, you know, those things are instant sense of reward in many cases and quite appealing as opposed to the big ugly job you've got waiting for you in your laptop. Yeah. And like you said, sometimes that's our form of uh, resistance or adversity where we're trying to find anything else to do other than that big hairy job that our yeah. laptop that we need to actually get done. Yeah. And then there's also this component where by taking that fun from that person, you're actually inhibiting them. You're kind of pulling them back, you're putting one arm behind their back so that now they don't get that happiness. And there's something about leading where you give somebody this opportunity and you see them win and you see them knock it out of the park and they crush it. And now they feel great. It's almost like we feel that reciprocal feeling, like even though we aren't the ones that done, they did it, we actually just like, wow, it's almost like a, a proud dad kind of moment. Absolutely. And if you can do that across multiple people, then you can unblock many of the challenges of scope. That's absolutely it. 
And so your journey to running ultra marathons, did you, you've done this your whole life and it's just easy for you? Is that how it is? No, not at all. And, and Phil and Aaron, the directors here, will laugh, you know, when they would kindly remind you of the condition I was in when I joined Flyform four and a half years ago. Not terrible condition, but I was a busy working sales professional that didn't take care of my health a great deal. Um, I was not into fitness. Uh, and the culture at Flyform, albeit a small company at the time, led by Phil and Aaron, was you know actually looking after yourself, the discipline to look after yourself, um, creates that mental strength to enable you to overcome the challenges of workplace and university. And that slowly rubbed off on me. I respected it. I liked it. I liked what I saw in them. I still gave all myself the excuses of, won't work for me because I'm always in hotels. Won't work for me because I'm always on the road. Just excuses. When COVID and the pandemic come along, many of these excuses were gone. Um, and like a lot of people, you're able to do some reflection at that point. Uh, so three years ago is when I started running. I was never a runner before then. Um, and I started, like many people, just running hundreds of metres, maybe a kilometre. I'm not particularly enjoying it, to be honest. But the thing about running is you get um, gains quite quickly. You know, Lifting weights maybe can take a while and, and other you know areas of sport and things might take a little while to, to see the benefit. It takes a lot of discipline. I was lucky that we've run in, you can literally see in days because one day, you're struggling to do 700 meters and the next day you can do 850 or 1,000 meters. And it's those marginal small things compiled over time that actually make you think, well, I'm not too bad at this. <laughs> when you get to a certain point, you start getting the benefits from it quite quickly. And then, you know, a particular point, you get kind of runners high where your body's just flooded with positive chemicals over completing the run. So very lucky to have started in that way. Um, grateful that I did and it certainly put me on a, on a trajectory a journey to you know to take it further and then you decided eventually to do an ultra marathon you did your first ultra in in Cyprus correct yeah so I was again very fortunate to be stuck in uh, on the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean through uh, COVID with my family so I had this almost in the middle of nowhere living near a national park with uh, sea mountains hills forests uh, so I was able to go running there which was hugely beneficial for my health and mental health at the time, to be honest. And whilst running, gradually building up distances, I saw a, a sign for a, a, an event called Akamas Blossom, which is a, an ultramarathon on the peninsula of the Akamas National Park. And it was several months away at the time. And I saw it in summer and it was coming up in April. Why not? The natural progression was I was finding 5Ks easy, 10Ks easy, 20Ks, you know, mildly challenging. I thought if it's going to continue like that, why not have a goal? We all often train better, focus better when there's a goal, an objective in mind, a compelling date, something fixed. Um, and also when you do these things and you make yourself accountable, when you start telling family and friends, I've signed up and I've done something, then you become really transparently accountable. So I kind of didn't want to think about it too much, signed myself up, told everyone I was going to do it and therefore had to live up to that promise to myself. And you start telling other people, and now it's like when they see you, they're like, "Hey, how's the training coming?" And you're like, "Shit, uh, we should probably get back on that." Yeah, yeah not, <laughs> not as not as good as I would like for it to be. And then the great thing too is during some of those runs, you said that you were able to your your wife and your son were actually sort of able to vicariously be along the ride for the ride, so to speak. But they also came up and 
were able to meet you or, you know, bring you some water or what have you? Right? Yeah. If I was doing any distance, so, you know, of over 20, 30 kilometers, then I would often need some supplies, certainly water in the, in the heat of Cyprus. Um, so I planned routes where they could meet me at specific points and uh, drop off some supplies uh, to keep me fueled for the rest of the journey. But it's very motivating to know that you know, I've only got 10k more before I see them at the top of the mountain and then I can run down the mountain, for example. Uh, so it was nice to have them involved. And I think when they got involved, you know, relatively early on, they saw I was serious about it, quite passionate about it. And they saw I, the benefit I was getting out of it as well. And there's something about knowing again that your family is going to be waiting for you that gives you that extra kick or this understanding that when your son's there and he's like, you got this, daddy, keep going. That's pretty powerful, right? Yeah, before long, my son Cameron, you know, were hugely impressed by my running and having seen the positive impact it was having on him. I think when I first told my family I was going to run an ultramarathon, I'd be in mind at the time I'd only just started running five 10Ks and I wasn't a runner by their standards or mine. They thought I was a bit crazy. When I did it successfully, my son thought I was a, a superhero. It feels amazing. Yeah, that alone is worth running the ultra, I think. They saw how hard it was as well. I did not breathe through this thing. Uh, my first ultra marathon, I got the award for last man on the mountain, which was an affectionate way of, you know, I was the last out of, it was only a 50 person race, but I was the last by quite some distance. <laughs> uh, it didn't matter to me because it was about completing it. It certainly didn't matter to them. Uh, they saw how hard I had to work to complete that and it just made it more valuable. It absolutely does. And then the great thing about this is, we talk about these circles of, there's five circles that we talk about, but those are the circles of leadership, in my opinion, because where those circles overlap, that's who you are. But all those things inform the leader that you are or that you can be within those moments. So can you tell us something that you learned during that ultra that is translated directly into the way that you lead now? I think on that, you know, when you test yourself to those limits, that's probably the first time for a long time on that race. Uh, push myself so hard so far i lost all my toenails which is pretty <laughs> gruesome i was struggling you know running out of daylight um everything hurt people running past me at ridiculous speeds which was a little bit disheartening but when you realize what your capacity is how much you can put up with how quickly it fades after doing it you know I'm yes. not, i was aching for a few days for sure but I was so elated by the feeling of the achievement and that pain soon fades quickly, but the benefits stay. The benefit of everything is now in comparison to a, like a different bar. You know, what is difficult for me before is when you put it on the scale of running for 14 hours up a mountain and back. So the scale is significantly bigger. Therefore, the adversity that you were faced is, is further down the scale. Yeah. Um, so you can apply that to work challenges that maybe a few weeks ago might have really cheesed me off and increased my stress levels. And now it's relatively easy in comparison to that new scale of adversity that I've got. And now that your adversity scale is clicked up, you decided that that wasn't enough for you. <laughs> so tell us about the path that led you into this odyssey through the, the desert. For about several months maybe a year after that ultramarathon i kept getting benefit from it 
and was like paying me back. So I mean, I paid back in terms of investment. There was you know, several months of training, but in terms of investment, I was paid back in the first month. It kept paying me back from a conversation with my son to hearing my wife talk about me to some strangers, to people at work uh, in the business I work, to my team, you know, to be able to set a challenge to my team. Um, and, you know, for them to be able to respond in a particular way uh, to how I interact with people in the organisation, in the ecosystem, in, in you know, in service now, et cetera. It kept paying me back. And on reflecting on that several months later, well, if that event, which was very hard, gives me this massive payback, let's say a 10 times payback, surely an event of more magnitude would give even more payback and there's simple logic so <laughs> I, I went online and, and googled about ultra marathons of which these days that everywhere in the world every sort of you know equation and the one that you know struck me was uh mds marathon Basal, um labeled as the toughest foot race on the planet and when you've read that you stop scrolling yes um I'm doing research for that. That idea floated around for, for a while in my brain, for sure. And so tell us exactly what that entails, what sort of support there is, what you have to do, because this is not just get up and run, you know, a marathon and then you're done. No. So if, if my first ultra marathon was around 65 kilometers uh, a day of running up and down some hills, um, the which is carry a backpack with a few essential items in, you know, some some water and um, gel packs and sweets and things like that. Marathon de Sable is a, is a different creature altogether. Uh, in order to earn that toughest foot race in the world, they've really stacked the, uh, the, the multipliers in there. The distance is 250 kilometres. Um, it's a multi-day race over six days, um, and it's a self-sufficient race. So you carry everything you need for the week except water. They provide the water. Too heavy to carry that amount of water. Um, combined with the fact it's in the desert, the Sahara Desert in Morocco, and the temperature will go up to 50 degrees Celsius in the desert. And that's well over 100 degrees for the Americans. Yeah, yeah. Extreme. The most extreme temperatures I've ever been in, you know, laying on a sunbed, let alone running, running around. Um, so... Those things added together make this uh, a truly unique event. It's very well organised. Uh, it's in its 37th year of operation. Um, several hundred people do it each year or certainly attempt it. So I was relatively confident it was as safe as it could be, tried and tested, you know, a, a mature, well-run uh, event. So I signed up before I could change my mind. And so you start in Morocco. And you run all the way across the Sahara. And it's, it's zigzagging. Um, so you're zigzagging around northern Morocco, mainly to try and get in as many different types of desert as possible. Because the desert isn't just flat sand by, by any stretch. Um, you've got riverbeds, you know, hard um, mud, clay. Um, you've got rocky flat sand. You've got salt flats. You've got sand dunes. 
um, and a surprising amount of uphill <laughs> as I encountered, uh, you know, on day two and three of the event. So, you know, these four or five terrains, the, the, the way the event is planned is to basically zigzag across these so you can get maximum enjoyment of the full terrain variety. Thank goodness, man. You don't yeah. want to miss any of that. You want to get every step in. <laughs> And so, and as you said, you're, you're self-sufficient, meaning you have to carry a ruck and you've yeah. got a certain amount of gear that you have to have. And as we were talking to debrief afterwards, you were telling me how that some of the stuff that you brought, you were like, this is not worth the wait. I was, I was quite disciplined. Um, I mean, my pack weighed about 8.4 kilograms. Um, the maximum limit is 15. The mega professional athletes will somehow go six or so, or so kilograms. Uh, you have to do some mandatory equipment, safety equipment, um, ranging from compass to snake venom pump, <laughs> which is reassuring. Um, <laughs> and the requirement to carry 2,000, minimum of 2,000 calories of food per day for the six days you're there. So these things all add up in, in weight, any creature comforts you want, the ability to you know hydrate and warm your food, sleeping bag, so on and so forth. So, you know, those things have got to be packed and carried. I, I didn't go too crazy on the creature comforts, but certainly, you know, as every day was the hardest thing I did, and then the next day was the hardest thing I did again, I quickly made some adjustments to my pack weight and started throwing things away that were less essential, just in an effort to marginally uh, increase my chance of success. And so it is a, it's a five-day or six-day event? Six-day. Uh, the... Day four takes two days. So day four, the long day, is a <laughs> 90-kilometer day. Good uh, Lord. People will run that at different speeds. The very well-trained individuals who I massively respect um, could do that in 20 hours. Um, I took 32 hours. <laughs> the cutoff was 36 hours. So I started at 7 o'clock in the morning, spent the whole day in the sun, going up a significant mountain range, down the other side, through several checkpoints, all the way through the night, significantly cooler, but harder to navigate. And then through the morning, back into the full day sun and completed about four o'clock in the afternoon or so. It's a long time to be out. Uh, it's a relatively, for me, individual event. Uh, some people, many of have done it before, would run in small groups, um, you know, be quite sociable and enjoyable for them, relatively. A lot of people like yourself were in your own head, you know, whether you've got headphones in or head down, and just fighting your own battle to put one foot in front of the other. For me, the, the entire event was relatively uh, solitary. And that's the thing about running. I've I've heard the analogy that people say runners are either running away from something or running towards something. And I think the real answer is it's both, depending on what step we have in front of us. Yeah, so in my training, you know, through lockdown, lots going on, family pressures and all sorts of worries and stuff of the world, which everyone had at the time, probably doing a lot of healing during running. Mm. Some distraction, maybe, uh, some healing, some processing, unpacking. On the bigger runs, as I've, you know, got to a stronger headspace myself, you know, lots of digging deep, lots of reflection, lots of contemplation. Um, and certainly in the desert, the most of that I've ever, ever done. And so there was something that you told me you were saying, because you prepared for this, you did, you did all your due diligence, you did all your work, you worked with your equipment, you had that down, much like a soldier preparing to deploy, we, we just get used to it, with like breathing. But you said that within the first day, you had some 
big adversity already that was making you question? Yeah, I, just, I really tried, you know, using, as I say, that military background to test everything. I went to Cyprus with all my new quit kit, tested it out, you know, and learned a lot from it. I was able to do my, my after action report and make my changes. So I was not overconfident at all. I knew this was going to be insanely difficult. But when I got to the desert um, on day one, which was a you know just under forty kilometer day, and I'm twenty six kilometers in, just past a uh, second checkpoint, and I had a mini meltdown of just how difficult it was, and how you can prepare for these things individually. I prepare for carrying the weight. Train with ten kilos, so I'm good with eight. I prepare for the distance. I can run seventy kilometers in a day, you know, without it killing me. I trained in the heat in Cyprus, maybe not the same heat, but, you know, relatively, I trained on different terrains, running on the beach in Cyprus, running up and down mountains, etc. Individually, I tried all these things. Combine them all in, plus the the unknown, the fact I've never been to the desert before, you know, so it's its own unique aspects. The the wind was hot. (laughs) I've never had hot wind before. It wasn't cooling or refreshing. It was suffocating. Um, What I found was, that my heart rate, you know, as, as someone that is fit that runs regularly, I would get my heart rate into a zone where I could practically run all day if I if I drink and fuel myself correctly. My heart rate in the desert was almost at max heart rate nearly all the time. Wow. And it's just physically extremely difficult to move <laughs> at any speed. You know, so you would run for a period of time, stop and walk, run for a period of time, stop and walk, but without any shade. You know, the open desert, we could be crossing, you know, a 10-kilometer stretch with no shade, no mountains, no hills, no bushes, no rocks or anything. So that run, stop, run, stop in, in that sort of thing, just keep your uh, heart rate manageable. Um, so I did, I kind of <laughs> had a little cry to myself, literally thinking, what what am I doing and how am I going to do it? Not just why, what am I doing, why am I here? I didn't even have time to process my platform. It was more, how is this physically possible? You know it is because people have done it before you. You know it is because occasionally people run past you. <laughs> like, right? So it's, it, it is physically doable. <laughs> but how am I going to do it? Um, I think it's easy to get overwhelmed. You know, it's easy to catastrophize it. It's easy to think about the entire journey. Um, you know, I had to remind myself to break it down. I'm not here to run six days. I'm here to run to the next checkpoint. If the next checkpoint's too far away, I'm here to run to that truth. And if that's too far away, I'm here to put four steps in front of the other and, and just really break it down into manageable steps. And that's everything, right? If we can knock it down into micro adversities, it's much easier to say, I'm going to go from here to that next hill and then I'm going to walk up the hill. Yeah. And and what does that do? That forces us to be present to this moment as opposed to looking at this huge, because like you said, and we've all been there during the 4 by 4 by 48 I was in places where I was like, fucking hell, man. It's like... 26 hours in and it's like i but again you're going to be at that place we have to expect that if we're if we're ambushed by it and now it feels like it's overwhelming and now we don't know what to do but even in that moment especially at the greatest point of adversity you still have a choice you still get to decide this is harder than i thought it was i acknowledge that i'm not as prepared as maybe i thought i was i acknowledge that this is heavier than i thought it was i acknowledge that now what Am I still willing to keep moving forward? And it doesn't have to be this bold, braggadocious, like warrior idea. It's like, can I put one foot in front of the other? And that's all you can do, especially in those sort of moments. So I love that you had that very, for better or for worse, that kind of punch in the face to give you this radical realism and say, there's no bravado to this. I just need to keep moving to get there. 
they set the tone for the week. You know, mm-hmm. it was just not going to be easy for a few days, and then one particularly hard bit is brutally hard from the start. You kept telling yourself, what do you expect in a desert? What do you expect if you're in a race called the toughest foot race in the world? You've got to take some responsibility for choosing to put yourself <laughs> in a situation, reminding yourself why you did it, and reminding you what it's worth. Because if it was easy and you wasn't feeling this, how valuable would it be to get out the other side of it? Because anyone from down the street could do it. Well, I didn't want to be everyone from the down the street. I wanted to be extraordinary, and this was my opportunity to do that. When I talk to Stephen Pressfield, we talk about the warrior journey, the hero's journey. And he says, as an author, your goal is to put your hero through adversity after adversity after adversity and to put them down, down, and down so that when they go back up, it's that much more of this celebration over the hardship. So you had that initial one during the first day, and then you had the long run at night. You said that there were some navigational challenges for some of that. Yeah. The course is relatively well marked. You have a road book with a map. You've got compass bearings. You don't need to use that too often. Often you can see someone a few hundred meters in front, a few hundred meters behind. You can roughly work out you're on the right course. Um, at night, second-guessing yourself, you know, trying to work out the distance to the next checkpoint. This particular checkpoint was 15 kilometers. Most were 9 or 12. It's a big distance, sand dunes. Um, in the day, you can pick your route through the sand dunes, be quite efficient or as efficient as possible. You don't want to be going up and down, up and down if you can walk three meters to the side of one of your around. Uh, and so whilst we were trying to navigate, um, probably at the lowest point I've ever been, <laughs> uh, to be honest, not just on that run, uh, in terms of doubt, uh, I managed to take myself off to the side of the course by quite some distance, distracted by some random lights that you don't normally get in a desert. Corrected that and did the uh, significant walk to get back on track and then plumped myself down on the sand dune, took my pack off, um, sat looking at the stars and kind of really evaluating why I was doing it. And this was, you know, this was quite, quite, quite hard. And this is probably the deepest I've been able to dig into my own mind because the, the easy reasons, they flow quite quickly and they get you a certain distance. Uh, and at the surface level, I was raising some money for charity. That feels great, and it's a good thing to do. You know, if anyone can do that, fantastic. But this is when adversity tries to like trade with me because straight away, it's, well, no one's going to take the money back, Adam. You've already raised the money for charity. No one's going to steal it back off them. So that reason actually floats away. It sounds terrible because this is an incredibly important charity. It's called Mind in the UK for mental health. I've done it. I've raised it. You know, me completing this doesn't make it any more or less money. It's already raised. So that peels away quite quickly. And that's fine because there's other things. You know, I I listen to these audio books and read books and podcasts uh, fanatically every every week, consume content, you know, when I'm traveling, exercising, etc. So I've got many great authors to draw upon, many great stories of inspiration. Um, I've got, you know, adversity stories. I've got Goggins and his ultra marathons. I've got all of this in my arsenal. And that gets you far. And you can toughen yourself up a little bit and G yourself up and you can motivate yourself, etc. But it disappears quite quickly when you're on your own in the desert, you know, just corrected your, your course correction. I'm 40k into a 90k day. I'm hungry, I'm tired, everything hurts, and I'm on my own. I think being on your own really forces you to go deeper. 
So, you know, if you want something a bit more substantial, a bit more meaningful, um, my family um, promised my family to to do this. And my son had wrote a message in a permanent pen in my sleeve of my running shirt. Um, I don't think it was a loaded message when he ran it. It was meant to be motivational, but the message said, Daddy, you've taught me to never give up. So I know you never will. So I know you never will has a real kick to it because that's a big responsibility to deliver that. It wasn't, you taught me to never give up, so give it your best. (laughs) So I know you never will. So that powered me a lot. And at times when I was fighting off tears, thinking, what the hell am I doing? I would look at that sleeve and see that. In times I would visualize um, to myself, crossing the line, getting the medal, going home and giving that medal to my son. It's incredibly powerful. Um, but then adversity, you know, has kind of peeled back that, as powerful as that is, to say, do you know what? Your son loves you unconditionally. Not going to think anything less of you if you go home now. Going home now is quite comfortable. You can be with your son sooner. All of a sudden, it's painting, quitting as an attractive option. You've done more than everyone else just by getting here. Look how far you've come into the long day. It's like I'm bargaining with myself. <laughs> And that's essentially what's happening. But then you have to find the real reason for being there, which is actually about me, my mindset, and what what's acceptable to me, what equation I'm happy with. You know, have I pushed myself hard enough through life? Will I be happy if I give up now? And I considered that maybe I'd coasted at points in my life and never really pushed myself to my full potential. So as a 43-year-old man, how many more opportunities have I got to make that course correction? It's easier to make that course correction there, sat my ass in the desert and prove to myself than to kid myself and trick, you know, and try and get myself back out there again or to do some other crazy challenge. And as selfish as it sounds, it was that reason that got me up quite quickly. It was that reason that made me, you know, speed march the next 45 kilometers and run whatever I could. Um, so that, that's what got me to the end of that race. I love that you did that. It's it's the truth. I mean, people say, you know, remember your why, but you have to know who you are. You have to know <laughs> who you are. So instead of asking why, ask who. Who are you? Are you who you claim to be? Who do you want to be at the end of this adversity? Do you want to be the person that has the medal to give to your son? Do you want to be the person who actually did what he said he was going to do? If for no other reason than to say that you were going to do it, make a promise to yourself, irrespective of the rest of the world watching you and then getting yeah. to there. That, that alone is what we have to do. Again, like you said, especially with all these like the low-hanging fruit is sort of taken from you. And adversity will offer you contingencies along the way. He's like, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody's going to know. But you'll know. And that's yeah. what we have to always keep in mind. It's, um, I'm glad I had that conversation with myself. <laughs> and certainly pleased with the, you know, the choice I made. And I, you know, I think that I'm sure there's many more things uh, lined up for me in the future, but that medal, the achievement of that medal, the significance of it, is probably the most valuable thing I've done. Agreed. And there's no other way to have gotten to that place where you would have had that deep conversation unless you were alone, unless it was dark, unless you were questioning, unless there was adversity pressing down on you. And you were saying that there was also, you knew in your mind that there's a potential that, you know, even if I don't give up, I may miss this deadline. I may miss the cutoff. You were saying that you missed it by four hours. So there's that additional amount of pressure, right? Yeah. I mean, I was never there to compete with anyone, but I was always aware of the cutoff times. 
most days I could be a couple of hours ahead of cutoff. But in the end, I plan around that, you know, so I get to certain checkpoints and my amount of rest I would allow myself would be determined by, you know, how much time did I have in the bank versus the cutoff. Um, so you can, I use that to, to motivate me and to help manage my time as well, to give myself uh, the maximum amount of rest without uh, encroaching on a period of time that I thought was safe. And talking about safety, I mean, there were plenty of people that did not finish this race. There were, unfortunately, even a fatality or two, right? Yeah, there has been in the past. There were no fatalities at this event, but there were a lot of medical evacuations. Um, the event is incredibly well organized. And so there's about 40 or so Land Rovers with medical personnel dotted around the course um, and two helicopters. Uh, everyone's wearing GPS tag with the ability to press an emergency beacon. A lot of people dropped out of this race, uh, over 300 people, a 30% drop rate, the normal drop rates for 5 to 10%, uh, normally for uh, either illness or problem with feet. The contributing factor here was the heat. We had a heat wave in the desert. Um, and that caused even some of the fittest people to just you know get get caught off guard maybe you push yourself too hard maybe you didn't drink at the right time maybe you didn't take the right electrolytes and tablets at the right time it's, you need to be on top of that um so as a reasonably fit individual to see some of these what i call mega athletes being helicoptered off the course i was running one day with one chap he collapsed the floor and had a seizure and they had to get a helicopter to get him off the course that's pretty scary. And you start thinking, right, I really want this, but I don't want to die for it. <laughs> um, but you've got to manage what you can manage. I'm going to drink my water at the right time. I'm going to take tablets at the right time. I'm not going to push myself to an extreme level where that's going to happen to me. You just do do what you can do. But it did add a whole new dimension. I was not expecting to see people drop in. This is not once or twice a day. In the tent just down from us, someone had a cardiac arrest. They were recovered. Uh, I'm really pleased about that. But, yeah, that's uh, serious consequences, serious cost. It absolutely is. And, uh, again, I, I think that subconsciously, if we think that it's not going to be as difficult as we as we believe it'll be, again, if we're – we've talked about this before in the military. There was, like – we called them PT studs. You have this young guy that comes in, runs like a gazelle, can do push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups forever – but you put a ruck on him and it breaks his soul because he's never had to face that adversity before. And in this true face of it, where it really is questioning him and saying, Oh, this is harder than you thought it was going to be. What are you going to do now? Most people will run from that. Most people will fall away from that, but you had adversity questioning you literally every step of this race, day one, day two, day three. So after that hardest day, you're through the darkness, you're, beyond the midpoint what was your mentality when you woke up in the morning to go put on your trainers and do it again the first challenge was you know majority of my friends in my tent have got back to the tent significantly earlier <laughs> several hours earlier so by the time i get back i wash and dry my feet eat some food i'm up at five o'clock in the morning you know ready to run another marathon at 7 a.m there really is not much time to, or certainly for, for me, based on the, the times I was running, to for rest and recovery um, before you've got to put shoes back on. But I mean, that would be hard, but there's, there's a, the optionality is removed. The choice is removed. You don't come this far to only come this far. 
So you just do it. <laughs> you just get out your sleeping bag instantly. You don't sit there and yawn and stretch for 10 minutes. It's just almost on autopilot. Get up, wash my feet, powder my feet, put my socks on, and just kit up and get ready and go to the start line. Because who on earth would do that much and then quit on the final day? And I think the final day was another marathon over, you know, over 43 kilometers. The checkpoints were ridiculous, like 12 kilometers apart. And you're almost laughing to yourself, right? <laughs> it's, it, it's surreal, you know, that they've not gone easy on us on the last day. This is sand dunes and, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's beautiful territory. Because I could afford at that point something like, the only way I'm coming off this course is in a helicopter or across the finish line. So with that in mind, keep putting one foot in front of the other I was actually able to raise my head on the last day and look around see a bit more of the desert take a few more photos because I'm like I'm getting to that finish line so it, it was a different experience but still equally tough the last day was again the hardest thing I've ever done <laughs> I've never done anything where every day of the week was the hardest thing I've ever done even in comparison to the day before and at this point, my body's not been, you know, I'm burning several thousand calories a day. I'm barely eating a thousand to two thousand calories a day. There's a huge energy deficit. It's remarkable how much you can do fueled by 10 litres of water a day. But you know you're exhausted at that point as well. I want to bring a highlight to what you pointed out. The routine. Waking up, it's a non-negotiable. Waking up, you're not negotiating with the terrorists in your mind of, oh, well, I may get up. Oh, I may hit snooze. That's not even a question. And so we see people talk about routine, but what they're missing below that, like routine or process or six steps that they're trying to do every day is this deep purpose that drives them. And you already had a powerful purpose moving into it. But then when you went through that dark night of the soul, literally, it gave you even more of that ambition to say, you know what, there is no way that I'm going to go this far and now give up at the last moment or compromise at this last second. Tell me what it felt like when you could finally see the finish line in your in your sight. In the desert, you can see things a lot further off before you're anywhere near getting there. And that took a few days of getting used to. So you can see the finish line from four or five kilometers out. That's still a significant time. I'm tempted to run it all and try and cross the line like a hero, but uh, didn't want to sprain my ankle and be that guy that uh, gets carried off or, or across <laughs> the line. Um, so, yeah, took it relatively steady and, and, and enjoyed it. You know, in the last three or 400 metres, um, a lot of people, again, because I was towards the end of the, the pack, a lot of people on the finish line cheering, all the other contestants, all the staff and organisers. My friends from my tent, who I'd only become friends with by way of sharing the tent with them, um, cheering, I could hear them from a couple hundred meters out. Crossing the line itself, never had so many emotions hit me at one time. I've had overwhelming emotions and, you know, kids are born, wedding day and things like that, but such a mix of emotions, that was unique. You know, um, relief, um, proud, just everything. I'm almost like every human emotion <laughs> boiling to the top. Uh, the organiser for the event, uh, French tackle Patrick, uh, you know, I'm sure his favourite job is being on the finish line, greeting people. This is nationalities from all over the world at this event. People travel all over the world to do this. Patrick gives you a big hug and puts some head on you. I just said I did it. I literally cried and said I did it. I didn't give up. That's Those words literally ingrained in me i did it i didn't give up because all through the event i was thinking about 
don't give up, promise to my son, so on and so forth. So to be able to cross that line, get that medal and say those things, just overwhelming. I'm emotional now just thinking about it. Absolutely, you should be. There's everything going on. It's, it's bittersweet. It's it's the highest of highs and lowest of lows, like you said, simultaneously. And then you said that you, you got that medal, but that's that's actually not your medal, right? No, I, I knew that I wanted to give that medal to Cameron. I knew that... Your son. If, you know, yeah, my son Cameron. He's 12 years old, and I knew that what it would mean to him you know, to be able to, he's seen and supported me on this. I mean, it's a big cost to my family. I would, some days I would train in two, two hours a night. Daddy's in the garage on the treadmill for two hours. You know, they've all paid a, a part of the cost in me, you know, getting here and being there and doing that. That's a lot of family time to sacrifice. I believe it's the right thing to do. I believe I've taught Cameron, a, you know, an important life lesson, but I wanted him to have something. I've got my memories and they're so vivid, I can feel the emotions. So I wanted to give Cameron the physical thing. And that medal is probably the most valuable thing I own, without a doubt. Um, so to give that to Cameron, and I hope that if he, as we all you know, encounter adversity in our lives, um, you know, maybe one day that encourages him to, to remind himself that you know, anything's possible and not to give up. And if it does, then that was all worth it. And just like you were saying, you got this tremendous amount of ROI, dare I say, from just the regular ultra. Yeah. So you ran through the desert, did this incredible feat, pushed yourself beyond what you thought was humanly possible, and then some, and then did it again and again. Then you fly to Vegas <laughs> a week thereafter. Tell us about the response that you got meeting people and what sort of um, momentum that created in that sort of environment. I'm really conscious that runners are a particular type of people. I have to consider myself one now, but before, you know, I found them mildly annoying because all they talk about is running. <laughs> so, I didn't want to be that guy that's telling everyone, you know, what he'd run this day and the other. It's like telling people what you had for breakfast, right? It's a bit, it's a bit repetitive and stuff. So I, I kind of think, but equally, this is a big event. So people find out, I talk about it, you know, it, it becomes apparent. So although I'm not advertising it to people massively, I went to this, you know, work event or even in the week in between before I got to the work event and people, uh, you know, in the business I work in, my customers and our supplier service now are going out of their way to congratulate me sincerely with lovely messages or, you know, hugs and handshakes. Uh, often many conversations starting with, Let's talk about the run. I'm introduced to people as the nut that run across the desert. You know, these, and I had no idea that that was part of the return on investment. If you like, I, this is for me, for my family, for my fitness, for my mindset, et cetera. Uh, all those things are, are massive. Definitely knew it had had an impact on the business I work in, on me as a leader, for sure, 100%. Didn't realize, you know, I had one of my largest customers phone me the day before I went to the desert. I thought it was an escalation call. Is that a, I said, yeah, what was it? I've heard you're going across the desert. Good luck, mate. It's bloody awesome. You know, and, and I did not expect this. And then to go to the event, you know, with many thousands of people in Vegas, um, senior executives from ServiceNow, you know, who we who we work closely with, just, you know, people recognising it, you know, just in a different way to what I ever expected, really. Um as a in terms of level of achievement in terms of what it means um 
think for most people, it's quite rare. No one, not many people know someone that's done this race. That's not to belittle a, a, you know, any distance that anyone does because it's all relative. You know, but um, it seems to be considered quite uh, exclusive and unique and therefore given a particular status, which I grateful for having considered but uh, yeah it's it's nice it feels nice for sure (laughs) yeah it's a tremendous amount of leadership capital and it gives you a uh, like you said a lot of perspective and if nothing else it it shows you're leading by example so if you're asking somebody to do something difficult and they know what you just accomplished not that it's a competition but it helps them understand that you're not asking them to do something that you wouldn't be willing or be able to do on your own so we've gone through so much of this and and I want to thank you for your time. Before we put a bow on this thing, if you had two or three points that you would give somebody that you could transpose to them from this event, whether it be a leader, whether it be an entrepreneur, a warrior, a person going through mental health issues, a person having trouble deciding on where they want to go, because being lost on the path is part of the path, is, as your dark knight that told us, what like two or three bullet points would you give people? I don't want to, I'm not, I don't like trying to do that, but I know that there's so much that we've discussed. Is there anything else that comes to mind? When I started that journey, everyone's lockdown um, pandemic experience is different and probably challenging for a lot of people. I think it's fair to say, without going into all the detail, my, my situation was pretty tough. I was barely hanging on to everything that was important to me in life. Um, I was in a dark, you know, a dark place uh, in many ways. And obviously, we're all quite isolated in this, you know, at that time as well. So it's difficult to go from that point where you don't know how you're going to get through a day or a week to the highs that I've been able to achieve recently shows what you're capable of. I've had a lot of support, so this is not about me. This is, but it shows what you, as an individual, are capable of. You know, with guidance and support. You know, if you read the right stuff, speak to the right people, surround yourself with the right people. Um, get into the right habits and, you know apply discipline all these things none of them come easy but executed successfully can have huge benefits i never considered i'd be able to do this type of thing and i'm now thinking about what i'm going to do next and i'm excited about it so just you know in terms of takeaways to understand that you can come from your lowest point and still be capable of many more high points and to do the small things that compound to take you there you know one positive habit my very first run was running to batters in my back garden when i was in a very low place from a mental health wise. that's where it started running 10 meters up and down my garden whether your desire is to run or whatever challenge you want to you know take yourself to then you know to understand that it can start with the smallest of things um that would be my main takeaway for sure i love it I know that you have other things chambered for what you want to do in the future. I don't know if you want to talk about those just yet, but you do have something else plotted for you to to work towards. Um, I just want to say thank you for being a great example of what happens when we actually lean in. It's very easy to have platitudes. It's very easy to talk about these things when we're warm and dry and fed and and well-rested. But when we're in the heat of it, the heat of adversity, or in in your case, the heat of the desert, that's when we understand who the hell we really are, what we truly believe, and what we will do when we don't think anybody's watching. So you were a great example of that. 
where can we learn more about you? We can follow you on LinkedIn. We can follow you on Instagram. Tell us all the places and what else we can do to continue your your journey. Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn's my main platform because, you know, my business community, that's where I post regularly. Um, and I think that's that's the best place to track my reflection on my current um, on recent attempts, but also where um, when I do decide what I'm doing next and announce it and go on that journey, then it'll probably be uh, relevant uh, on that platform as well. I love it. Thank you so much for being on, brother. I uh, look forward to our other discussions. Adam Godfrey, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.